Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 13th episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Today's scientist is Beth Webb, a postdoctoral researcher in platelet biology at the University of Leeds. My co-host for today is Emilia Angelillo, a science technician at Sancton Woods School. Welcome, Beth and Emilia. Hi. Hi there. Yeah, I'm going to dive right in. So my first question is always the same, and it's also a question for both of you. Do you have a science fact or anecdote that you would like to share with our audience? Um, I'm going to start with you, Beth. Do you have something for us? Yes. Yeah, so as a platelet researcher, I'm going to go with a platelet fact. Um, something that I find pretty cool is just the sheer amount of platelets in the human body. So generally, when you look or Google um, how many platelets are there in the blood, you will get the stock answer of 150,000 to 450,000 per microliter of blood, which doesn't really tell you how much is in the blood. So I've done the maths and I've worked it out. You have five liters of blood in the body. So if we take an average of that range, you end up having 1.5 times 10 to the power of 12 platelets in the human body, which is a huge number. And that is about a trillion platelets in the body, which is hard to even comprehend, but I think that's pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really big number. <laughs> yeah. And Emilia, do you have something as well? Well, I've read something on a book uh, that I like a lot. It's called uh, Astronomical. So it's uh, basically it's about two scientists that were studying Robert Wilson and uh, Arno Penzias. It's quite difficult to pronounce that one. They were studying the universe uh, and taking measurements with an antenna to pick up radio from the stars. And uh, all of a sudden, they had, uh, um, they had some strange noises. So they thought that they maybe uh, have discovered something. But then when they went to check better the signal and everything, they realized that there were actually, there was a nest of pigeons uh, nearby the, <laughs> the microphone. So <laughs> that made me laugh. <laughs> Yeah, that's quite funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes, you know, the thing is, uh, we, we always get excited um, when we think we have to find out something nice. And sometimes we don't think to the basic things that actually can be the cause of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that might some, sometimes be a, a simple error. And that's yeah. actually going to uh, my facts. So we all know that spinach has a lot of iron. And that's yeah. based on an experiment in the in the 30s, I think, 1930s. And that's also that also gave life to cartoons like Popeye, who eats a lot of spinach and then gets really strong. But those experiments have been redone. And as it turns out, spinach doesn't have that much iron. It has a lot of iron, but not that exceptionally. It's simple. It's not that, mu that much better like than broccoli or Brussels sprouts or something. And what actually happened was in the original experiments, the scientists actually misplaced a decimal point. So they overestimated it by a factor of 10. Ooh. That's painful. Yeah. We've all been there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, so Beth, uh, I'm going to start with you. So you're the scientist for today. You work in platelet biology, but in general, that field, what does that mean, platelet biology? So the field generally um, looks at 
Platelets, which if you don't know what platelets are, they are the smallest blood cells in the body and they are aggregatory cells and they are responsible for causing blood clots or upon injury. So it's kind of what makes your blood sticky. Um, in terms of the general field, we, we have a lot of platelets, as my <laughs> previous answer said, but we kind of don't know what they all do and whether you, whether they're all actually useful in hemostasis. Um, there's been studies to suggest that they're involved in immunity as well. Um, so the general field looks at kind of cardiovascular disease, um, blood disorders, thrombosis, um, immunity, a variety of different things. Platelets are also implicated in cancer. So it's quite a broad field, but it's a very small field. There's not many many people involved in platelet biology. It's usually kind of like a sideline to something else, but hardcore platelet biology, the, the field is pretty small, just like cells. And in that field of platelet biology, what is your focus? What do you do exactly? So my research focuses on the inhibitory signaling pathways that are naturally occurring in your blood. So for example, as we're sat here now chatting, hopefully none of us are spontaneously clotting and the platelets are kept in a resting state through inhibitory signaling pathways. So these are just agents that are released from the blood vessel that initiate signaling pathways for cyclic AMP and cyclic GMP. So they are second messengers for most cells, but they're also involved in platelets. And without these signaling pathways, we probably would have spontaneous clotting, which you don't want. Um, so my PhD research was looking at proteins within that pathway and what their role is and whether these are implicated in cardiovascular disease or the events leading up to cardiovascular disease. So we already have a lot of different, uh, maybe difficult terms sometimes. Yeah. So <laughs> you already said platelets are cells, right? So yes. most people know red blood cells, they know white blood cells. Platelets, I don't think most people know that are actually also cells. Yes. So there's kind of an ongoing joke that if you're, you don't ever tell a platelet biologist that they're a fragment of a cell because platelets come from fragmentation of megakaryocytes, which are in the bone marrow. And so they're derived from megakaryocytes, but they behave like cells. So they are cells in their own right. They don't have a lot of the same machinery as other cells, but they are cells in their own right. Okay. So they are Complete, so they are completely, they can function on their own. They can function on their own. They do a variety of different things on their own. And so you were looking at the proteins that are signaling actually to the platelets, to what they should do more or less? Yeah. So the inhibitory agents that are in the blood, they, um, for example, one of them is called prostacycline, and that binds to a receptor on the surface of platelets. This is coupled to another protein called a G protein, and then that activates a protein called adenylylcyclase, which is what I'm interested in. And that is the precursor to activation or production of cyclic AMP. So that kind of relationship receptor G protein and the adenylylcyclase is what I'm interested in. Can you rephrase that in like simple terms? What does that cycle mean exactly? Okay, so... The inhibitory agent prostacycline is an inhibitory agent. So it, when it initiates cyclic AMP signaling, 
that is what keeps platelets in a resting state. So they're not active. They just, they look like a plate, hence the term platelet. And they, that is just how we are now in the blood. Your platelets are kept in this resting state. And that is response, that is due to cyclic AMP signaling. So it's a very important inhibitory signaling pathway. That being said, if you injure yourself, your platelets can still activate to form a blood clot. So the pathway is all about balance between activation and inhibition. So you're actually looking at what triggers the blood plates to transfer from their resting state to their active state. Yeah. So for example, or to rephrase that, so kind of my research is looking at if you if there's an issue with your inhibitory signaling that shifts the balance to a more activatory state so when we think of cardiovascular disease we think of heart attacks thrombosis stroke all of these clotting events and there's a school of thought that suggests that that is because the inhibitory signaling pathways that are naturally occurring have failed in some way so therefore they're shifted more towards an activatory state. If I'm getting this correctly, the blood plates are passive and at some point they get active and that can cause cardiovascular disease because if they become active when they don't need, when they don't need to be, they can uh, cause like a blood clot or something like that. Yeah, so they, they can initiate unwanted blood clots, which generally are not good we don't want those so that is what kind of leads to thrombosis stroke and heart attacks obviously it's multifactorial it's not just that but it's a big element of that because that's the blood <laughs> yeah and are you looking at ways on how to stop that cycle or just how it works in general or generally how it works and if if we if we find something of interest, then that could be a potential drug target because one of the issues at the moment with antiplatelet medication is the, the response as to whether they work or you also can have bleeding deficiencies on antiplatelet medication. And that's, that's not great in terms of quality of life. So the ideal drug would be something that can protect you from cardiovascular events such as thrombosis, clots, stroke, but doesn't doesn't mean that you are then at risk of bleeding. And that's a fine balance. It's a very fine-tuned balance. Hopefully we'll get there one day. <laughs> and uh, when you when we talk about platelets being active, are they still do they change shapes or are they still the same shape? Yeah. So in the blood, in their passive states, they are kind of just like a plate, hence the term platelet. Um, and when they become active, they kind of look a little bit like jellyfish. They they have these like projections and they just, they look really funky and weird under a microscope um, when you see them in their activated state. And that means that they can attach to each other, attach to the surface of the injury and basically create this like mesh that allows this blood clot to stay in place and to form and grow. But when they're in, um, in the in initial state, uh, and you say they look like a platelet, right? Yeah. Like a plate, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so they look like a plate. I was wondering, because if, not, if I'm not wrong, uh, the platelet, they, they can't be defined as a cell, right? 
because they don't have the nuclei. Am I wrong? So yeah, they don't. You're right. They don't have a nucleus. But um, most platelet biologists would be like, no, it is a cell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it is a cell. You call it a cell. We call it a cell. I'm sure other people would disagree, but... Um... No, it's okay. I mean, <laughs> so you call it a cell, and uh, even though they don't have the nuclei, right? But uh, do they lose uh, the nuclei uh, before or when they activate? When they are formed from megakaryocytes, they're fragments of the megakaryocytes, so they don't have a nucleus because of that. But the way that they behave regardless of whether they have a nucleus is what makes them interesting because they do behave like cells despite not having the brain of the cell they respond to external stimuli so also for our listeners you say they don't have a core so they actually don't have dna am i right they don't have dna yeah that's correct yeah it's just a reference that i have in my head uh, there are also some similar cells actually in plants you have uh cells that make like a companion complex and one cell does have DNA and the other one doesn't and the one that does have DNA actually kind of supports the other one and that's used in the in the transport of uh, sugars from the leaves towards the stem and the roots and stuff like that that's so there's there's some analogy yeah okay so that being said they don't have a nucleus they change shapes when they're active Um, and you are looking at how those processes are being actually modulated. Yeah. And how do you do your research? Do you get blood plates from somewhere or is it something else? So we do get um, platelets from uh, donors. So we currently, we are only allowed to take blood from people at the University of Leeds. So that's staff members and students at the University of Leeds. Um, And these are considered a healthy pool of people because we we don't ask them any questions um, about their health. We just want a normal pool of blood to kind of give us enough variance when it comes to our experiments. So with that, you can either use whole blood to perform your experiments or you can isolate the platelets from the blood. And that's something that we do quite, quite a lot. Um, so then that way you're looking completely at the platelets rather than all the other components in the blood. The students then give their blood for science, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can really say that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've donated a lot of blood myself. And I, even in my, in my thesis, there's kind of, I've got some microscopy images and it's my own platelets. I'm like, yes, look how beautiful they are. You give your blood for science. <laughs> yeah, I'm always like, it was literally blood, sweat and tears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, maybe a, a short side question. You talk about blood donations. Um, I also sometimes donate blood, but they can separate it. So you can donate blood, you can donate plasma, you can donate platelets. Yes. W- what is the difference actually? For for most people, I don't think they really know. They just know it's a different term. But what, what is the difference in when you're donating? So when you donate blood to a blood bank, you will probably always be donating blood in its whole form so that includes your red blood cells plasma and platelets and they can use certain machines that isolate and separate those when you donate you're donating the blood as it is you can't just donate platelets or plasma Um, if you go to a blood bank they can 
give you back your red blood cells and your plasma if you're donating platelets or if you're donating plasma they can give you back your red blood cells and your platelets but when you go for the donation you're donating just whole blood so if you're donating plasma you're actually first donating everything it goes into the machine and then they're giving some parts back to you yeah so you kind of hooked up um this is this is for blood banks for us we don't do that we just take the whole blood and we isolate and separate it ourselves and unfortunately we don't give anything back to you because we you know once it's in the lab it's in the lab um we take it all and what we do because we're quite conscious about blood donations is we try and share it between different researchers so someone might want the whole blood someone might want plasma someone might want just the platelets and if we can get as much as we can from a donor then that's better because it's not great donate new blood i know it's i know it's um it's good to donate for science and it's good to donate for for like the blood bank and everything but it is invasive at the end of the day and not many people like it so it is completely voluntary so we try and make the process as simple and as easy as possible and we try and get as much out of one blood donation as possible if you donate blood uh, do they separate it as well or do they use the whole blood like in a donation bank? So it really does depend. So I think when you so when you go to a donation bank, um, you can sign up to donate blood, plasma or platelets. And I think with plasma and platelets, you you they take more blood volume, but you get stuff, you get the other components back. Um, so it's just making sure that you're OK to do that, because some people might not be comfortable with that it's a more involved process because you are kind of hooked up you've got a needle in one arm and then the other or it can be the same i don't know i don't know how it all works but you are connected essentially i think it's the same it's a horrible concept when you think about it but it's pretty cool <laughs> um i would love to be able to do it but i think i'm a bit squeamish ironically for that um so yeah, I think with plasma and with platelet donations, you do actually, the volume you donate is more, but probably not when when you get your components back. Whereas if you just do a full blood donation with your whole blood, it's just that one bag and then that's you done. Like you said, it is ironic that you're a bit squeamish about donating <laughs> blood or plasma. Um, but let's go back to your research. So you said you get those blood platelets. Imagine you have those platelets. What do you do with them? There's a lot of different things that we can do. Um, one of the the main techniques that I use in terms of assessing the function of platelets, so how they how they work, is something called platelet agrogometry. That's something you're going to have to explain. Yeah, yeah, I'm no. gonna I'm gonna do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's, okay. it's something called light transmission agrogometry, which um, basically uses a it uses light to pass through a solution. And if your platelets are in the passive or resting state, it's really opaque, so light can't pass through it. But when they aggregate, they clump together and they're not in a solution anymore. They clump together and they kind of rise up to the top of that liquid, so then light can pass through. And that you can that then gives you a trace of aggregation over time, so how much your platelets are aggregating over time. So with that, you can use certain agonists to activate your platelets. So traditional agonists would be collagen or thrombin because they're in the blood already and collagen gets exposed when you injure yourself. So that would be a good agonist to cause platelet activation. 
But if you wanted to control this and control different parts of different signaling pathways, you can use inhibitors for different proteins. And that can demonstrate different things um, in terms of if your platelets will still be able to act activate or aggregate, they may or may not be able to do that. To put it as simple as possible, so you're, you have blood plates in a container and you put some chemical in there that's already in your blood and you check yeah. will they clutch together or will they separate and you do that by sending light through it and seeing how much of the light is giving through. Yeah, exactly that. It's a really old technique, actually. It's, it was, um, it's been used for years um, and it's kind of the first like pioneered technique to study platelets, um, but it's still used today and it's still just as important. But everyone always jokes that biology is essentially pipetting one clear liquid into another clear liquid and just hoping for the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. It says that usually they say that if it's a smell, it's biology, right? <laughs> if it smells, it's biology. Well. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, actually. I don't know if it does, like, maybe I'm so used to. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. The, the smells. Uh, so you have the blood plates. Now you have seen that they have formed uh, like a clot or something, or they didn't. What? What do you do with those results? Do, is there a next step or is that the whole pathway that you're checking? Um, I wish it was the whole pathway. Um, so because platelet aggregation and activation involves a lot of things all at once happening at the same time, unless you use specific inhibitors or very specific activators, you can't really assess specifically what's going on if that makes sense so if you want to then look at say the downstream signaling you can use a variety of different tools um which are much more specific but for a general general overview to assess whether your platelets are functional and of good quality then platelet aggregation is the is the kind of first step that you would do you also said that Platelets have a lot of different functions. What are all those functions? And are you looking at all those functions or just one function? I'm not looking at all those functions because I feel like it's all too much at once. And I don't know if a singular person could do that. I've said before that platelets are involved in cancer, immunity, hemostasis and thrombosis. So what, what my focus is are mainly hemostasis, which is the stopping of bleeding essentially and thrombosis which is your kind of pathological clot that you don't want um so they're the main focuses for me obviously there will be elements of the immune system involved in that but when you're in the lab and you're you've isolated themselves themselves it's really hard to look at it in the big picture if that makes sense so we focus mainly on general platelet aggregation activation in terms of hemostasis and then when it's challenged in terms of thrombosis and do blood plates with different functions look different or do they have the same shape you can get different populations of cells so in terms of how they look they do they can look a little bit different so without going <laughs> crazy into platelet biology there are two schools of thought and two kind of 
types of platelets. One of them is a pro-aggregatory platelet and one is a pro-coagulant platelet. And this, these are all just in a population of platelets. You will have both of these. The pro-coagulant platelets kind of look like they've got balloon surface. And what this does, it kind of facilitates the coagulation cascade, so the enzymes involved in blood coagulation. Whereas the aggregatory platelets, um, they are responsible for the platelets that bind to one another and the surface of injury. So there are two there are two types. There's probably more, but that's what's been identified at the moment and what's currently in the literature and stuff that we've seen in our lab as well. Um, but I imagine there's probably more going on. <laughs> are they different because of their place of origin or that doesn't matter? They all originate from the same space? We think they originate from the same space. We don't know if in that production of platelets from the fragmentation of the megakaryocytes, whether in that moment they are destined to be a pro-coagulant or a pro-aggregatory. It's really hard to find that information. So we don't know at the moment. I would love to know, um, but we don't know at the moment, unfortunately. You have tested your platelets. You have found some something that makes them coalesce or makes them stick together. What do you do with that information? Do you then look for something to take them apart again? Or do you look for some combination of that chemical with another chemical? We would probably look at the combination of chemicals. So generally speaking, activators and inhibitors together um, to see to see what they do. Um, once you've formed an aggregate, a platelet aggregate, it's kind of difficult to reverse that they won't be functional again um you can you can break down the aggregate but that platelet has kind of served its purpose that makes sense it's done what it needs to do and it's unlikely that it will be will ever be functional again which is probably why we have so many <laughs> so a blood plate is passive and when it becomes active then it has served its function and it can never be reused again Potentially, there are some studies that suggest that they can, if they don't go into full activation, they can go into partial activation, they can still be functional. But if they reach full activation where they are stuck together, they've created the aggregate, the, the clumping together, then that in theory is kind of the end for that platelet. And in terms of medicine, that come out of that research? What what types are we looking at? Is it like blood thinners? Is that something that you're looking yeah, at? Yeah, so, so antiplatelet medication can prevent blood clots, hence there's the bleeding phenotype. Um, there's also anticoagulants, which are more targeted to the coagulation cascade. Um, and that can be, you can get some that prevent blood clots or you can get some that can help with the breakdown of blood clots, so they don't become occlusive, so they don't they don't um, block a vessel. I think that's the thing that we hear the most, like blood thinners, but they also have the inverse because people sometimes have a disease where they just keep on bleeding. Is there something that you can do apart from actively adding blood plates? Is there medication to increase blood plate production? 
it's not my that's kind of not my area but I, i'm i'm not entirely sure to be honest um i know obviously like you say with with people that have um hemophilia or blood or bleeding disorders they tend to give the blood platelet concentrates um which i i don't know if you can you you'd probably have to look at the megakaryocytes and have drugs that target megakaryocytes to initiate more production of platelets and do platelets always stay in the blood or can they exit and go somewhere else i assume they always stay in the blood but i'm not sure they they do stay in the blood there are some studies to suggest um some of them came out of the from the pandemic actually um was that there are platelets in the lung as well um so with the COVID-19 pandemic where people were getting blood clots in their lung, it they think it's because of the platelets that were already there. Um, so Okay. Yeah. But you have a lot of blood vessels in your lung as well, right? Yeah. So you have the blood vessels, but there's also some there's some research to suggest that um platelets can be produced in the lung as well. But I don't know a lot about that. I just thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> That yeah, really no, cool. that's really cool. I didn't know that. So maybe yeah, there's, there's not a huge amount on it, but it definitely it came out kind of around the pandemic because of when they were looking at these like microemboli and emboli within the lung. The, yeah, that was happening a lot, wasn't it? Yeah. It was yes, you've got your blood vessels, but also is that are there kind of platelets just there? Um oh, okay. so, yeah. So so did your research changed because of COVID-19? Unfortunately not. Um, we, it was kind of different depending on which institute and which country you were in. Um, we had a lot of grants at the time and I think it was very difficult to kind of switch focus. Um, you'd have to apply for more funding to be able to do that. And I don't think we were in the position to do that, but there are some other groups, some in the UK that did some really interesting studies um, with platelets and COVID-19 um, and this this subsection of um, different platelets, so the procoagulant and the proaggregatory ones in COVID-19 patients, which is really interesting stuff, really cool stuff. Okay. And can you actually survive without blood plates? I don't think so, but... Probably not. Um, or not well, for a long time. I mean, time. that's not that's not true. There are people that have um, disorders where they have very low platelet counts. So you've got thrombocytopenia um, and they can survive, but you're at risk of bleeding um, a lot. So you, these patients would typically have a lot of bruising, like nosebleeds, bleeding from their gums, like all these kind of things that... that we don't experience if you don't have that um so and you have to be quite careful like if you really injure yourself you you you're a high risk patient so you'd have to get platelet concentrates you'd have to get transfusions all those kind of things so it's you can survive but i think it's quite a challenging life without platelets and how do you define the different types of platelets so the procoagulant platelets um that I said before that kind of have like a ballooning type appearance. They have something called phosphatidylserine or PS on the surface, which is a phospholipid and that creates a negative charge. Um, so upon activation, they're usually inside and they kind of flip outside 
um, upon activation. And that negatively charged surface is what facilitates activation of something called thrombin, which is important in the coagulation cascade. So that's kind of how you can identify a procoagulant platelet. And we've been able to do that in patient studies. So patients with that have just suffered a heart attack or patients that are have stable cardiovascular disease. So they're medicated or they are have been they're on the borderline or waiting for surgery, those kind of patients. And we've been able to identify that in their normal state. So as we are now, if we took their blood, so these patients' blood, they had a high proportion of these procoagulant platelets in their blood without any activation. So this is just their blood as is. They have a high proportion of procoagulant platelets that already appear to be active or in an active state, which is not good because that would then trigger blood coagulation. So it's quite an interesting find. Um, obviously, a lot more work that needs to be done, but it's it's not good for those that do have cardiovascular disease and those that have just suffered a heart attack. Um, are they more likely to have another heart attack or another cardiovascular event because they have these, these procoagulant platelets in their blood? Who knows? They're kind of the things that we would like to figure out, maybe. And do you know, so... After they had a heart attack, they have a larger chance of, um, or maybe a larger chance of having another clot. Um, Potentially. But... I mean, they, so when we see them, um, they, they've, the intervention has happened. So we get their blood just before they go in to have whatever surgery it is that they require. So in a lot of cases, it would be fitting something called a stent which widens the arteries to allow blood flow to occur um that's quite a common one it's probably one of the most common ones um here in the uk there are other surgeries that are a bit more involved um but mainly the stent fitting is is the more common one so the blood that we take is before that's happened we haven't done any follow-up stuff i'd love to do follow-up um studies because they'll have had a stent fitted and they'll have been on platelet medication so it would be really interesting to see with the stent and the medication whether they still have this population of procoagulant platelets. Yeah, and it's hard to investigate, but it would also be really interesting to know if they have those higher levels before they have a heart attack. Yeah, so we saw some of that in patients that were at risk of a cardiovascular event. So it was quite a trend. So then we had we had control healthy age match platelets at patients. Um, so you can see that that was really low level in the healthy control group. And then it kind of went up as your risk of cardiovascular disease or just after a cardiovascular event happened. So it could potentially be a marker for that. Um, who knows? Um, but it's it's cool stuff. It's really, really cool stuff. It reminds me when I used to work as a biologist in a in a laboratory, like a private laboratory. You know, the ones that make analysis of your blood, basically. And I remember, I remember that a lot of people uh, they have a low uh, number of platelets, but they're fine. They're they have no uh, any any condition like that. They haven't born like that. So I was wondering, 
what's happening to their body, like uh, all the process you have said and you have explained, I wonder if they are the same or there is something different. So how they can compensate this low level of platelet? Yeah, so I mean, it's quite interesting that you you mentioned that because um, sometimes like myself and other people in our group, we sometimes talk, is it quality over quantity? So the quality of the platelet, the, the platelets that you do have, if they're able to still do a very good job and still prevent you from bleeding, then it doesn't really matter how much. And it's a huge range as well when you look at the, the normal window. It's a massive range and it is so variable. Even when we look at just a healthy pool of people, and the you know there's there's could be a lot of factors involved um it could be genetic it could be all sorts of things but i don't know i think sometimes it might be the quality of your platelets um over the quantity of them but it's still really weird like no one knows why some people have loads and they're not just just having a heart attack um you know what i mean it's 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 a bit of a mystery one that I hope we can figure out. <laughs> yeah. If, I, if I'm not wrong, there is a difference also between female and males. I mean, yes. the, I think the, the women usually they have more, right? Women have a lot more. It's kind of impressive. And I would imagine it's probably due to like childbirth and labor and menstrual cycle. I, I would imagine it's something related to that. Um, I'm sure people have looked into that. But generally speaking, like even with the stuff that we've found, just just if you do platelet counts between men and women of the same age the women are usually have like so many more and you just think but you're you're like that within the range within like the healthy range but it's generally we see like the males at the lower end and females at the higher end oh i say so much more is it like half more or so the range is like 150,000 to 450,000 so it can be like double yeah, so it's, it's a massive range. And everyone's like, oh, it doesn't really make sense that the range is so big, but I don't know. It, it could, I, I, I suspect it's because of, say, like labor, menstrual cycle, all of those kind of things, probably related to hormones within the menstrual cycle as well. There's a variety of different things, but um, yeah, it's quite striking. There is a striking difference. So, and you mentioned that there might also be big difference in quality over quantity is there a way you could assess quality of platelets i guess coming back to the platelet aggregation experiment you could maybe look at different uh platelet counts so we kind of standardize a lot of our experiments to a particular platelet count so we know exactly how many platelets are in that experiment um, but you could you could definitely play around with reducing that count to see if you could still get platelet aggregation and whether some people would be able to do that and some people wouldn't be able to do that. It really does depend. You can definitely play around with the, the number of platelets and see whether they're still able to perform accordingly and compare to a larger volume or platelet count. And is that something that you would be looking into as well, or is that out of your range? It's not something that I would look into. I mean, of course, I'd be very interested in it, um, trying not to take on <laughs> too many different side projects. But I do think it is interesting. It is something that as a lab group, we have kind of talked about. 
Um, but I don't know if it's something that we will explore, but who knows, potentially. Beth, you recently finished your PhD. You are still in academia, you're doing a postdoc now. So I assume you want to stay in academia at least for a little while. Um, why, what do you like about academia so much? Um, well, yeah, so I mean, I do want to stay in academia, but I also am very open-minded about other things. I, I think science, I, I love science, if you can't tell, I love biology. Um, and sometimes there are other opportunities that might not necessarily be academia that could be a really, really great way to pro progress science. Um, so I'm very open-minded. I feel like, oh, do you want to stay? Do you want to be a professor? I'd love that, obviously. I think a lot of people would, but I am very open-minded about that in terms of long-term goals. Um, but in terms of what I like about academia, I kind of like the flexibility. It's a little bit of a double-edged sword because you don't have a lot of accountability. So <laughs> it can swing either way, really. Um, I kind of like the fact that I can explore a lot of different things um, and just kind of follow rabbit holes and curiosity that's not to say that you can't do that in other industries um but in my experience I I like that um I also like the fact that you kind of can do something different every day and if you want to learn something you can um the people I work with are all really nice and if you want to learn a different technique from someone in a different group most people are very happy to help um so I, I like that there's a lot of variety. And is there stuff that you don't like about academia? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so obviously it's very competitive and there's a pressure to publish. I've always kind of felt a lot of imposter syndrome about that because through my PhD, I was able to contribute to papers, but I didn't publish a first author paper throughout my PhD. And a lot of people are like, oh, that's like academic suicide, but the opportunity didn't arise. It's not to say that it won't come, it will come, we're working on it. Um, but I do feel a lot of imposter syndrome with that. So I feel like that doesn't help. And the fact that there's a lot of competition and contracts are very short and you're always gonna be on contract work um, unless you, are able to progress and go down the professorship route. Um, but again, that's really hard to do and very competitive. So there are downsides, um, but right now I like it. <laughs> yeah, but imposter syndrome is a real problem that a lot of people struggle with. And it's really hard because also when you have imposter syndrome, you're also thinking, okay, maybe you're realizing I have imposter syndrome. But at what point are you thinking I have imposter syndrome? And at one point you're really not doing enough or not good enough. And yeah. where do you draw the line? And yeah, it's really hard. And it, it, I, it's a difficult thing to cope with. And I think it's something that I heard a lot of scientists say as well, that they don't feel good enough. And I think that's one of the problems we also have in academia, that everyone is quite negative and that's also partially because of the publication pressure. Like yeah. if you get a review, I, I, did you ever get a positive review? I mean, <laughs> it's also, it's always breaking down what you've written and never wants something positive. And I think that encourages imposter syndrome. 
Yeah, I think it's very common in academia, this. Because, for example, I have uh, worked in um, industries all my life. I, I, I decided uh, um, not to join the academia. <laughs> because I, I really, no, I, I have a lot of admiration for people that do research. I do, I really do. But my dream was, since I was at university, it was to work uh, um, doing analysis of human sample and understand why they were sick. So I did the blood uh, sample, I, I analyzed blood sample, urine, I mean, all the maybe disgusting things that you think, oh my God, you really deal with that all the time. Yeah, but it's very interesting because actually uh, doing that, you understand why a person is sick and what's wrong with them, right? Yeah. So uh, I, I have done that all my life. I mean, apart the last part of my career, which I switched for education. So now I'm doing something different. I'm in, uh, in school. But, uh, and uh, to be honest, um, this imposter syndrome that nowadays is so uh, common, um, I never heard of it. I didn't. Maybe because we didn't talk about it. But I think, I, I do think that something specifically related to academia. Uh, because the pressure is too much, I think. Yeah, you're you're never good enough. Uh, yeah, exactly. When I, actually they they should, I think this is a, that's a shame because uh, um, all the people that do research they really sacrifice themselves, and they they should have uh, at least the consideration of everyone about it. But uh, you see, it's it's. I, I feel like. Uh, um, there is this uh, um, ungrateful, uh, ungratefulness of people uh, towards it, and it's it's not fair, basically, yeah. for me. So I really, really don't like this of academia. Something that I even on Instagram, I, I when I read, uh, there is a lot of PhD that I follow and we follow each other, and it's always about that issue. So it's not something. It's not it's something that really happened. This is what I mean. It's something so common in Africa. They really should do something about it. I think some of it, um, I've had different jobs before going, before I was a research um, technician and then I went on to do my PhD. And I think some of the, it just doesn't have the same kind of structure as other jobs. Like even when I worked in retail, you had performance reviews and you had action plans to see how you were checking in and your boss would be like, that was great. Like, you know, all of these kind of things. And you kind of, you know what you're working towards and like, okay, if you do academia, there are things that you need to work towards, but it's all very self-imposed unless it's a deadline that someone from above has put down on you randomly. Um, the, I, you don't really have these kind of check-ins and there's a lot of old school academics that were kind of like, well, this is how it always been and that's how it's always going to be. And I never got this and blah, blah, blah. And I had to do everything on my own. And that does trickle down. And, and I'm not saying people need their hand holding and being told like, there, there, you know, but I think sometimes just saying like, you did a great job or this is good, can go a really long way. I think it's the type of job, because if you think about it, when I used to work in, a, in, a, in the hospital, basically in the NHS, right? So we have samples for people. And at the end of the day, we have the results that we do. So it's something quite immediate. 
you know if you're yeah. doing well or not because if you understand what's going on with that person what's wrong about them then yeah. you did it right if, if yeah. you if you wander in the dark and you say look i really don't understand what, what's going on here then it means you're doing, not doing well or maybe there is something else that is not depending on you right but in academia because you're doing a research sometimes they are so long you don't really know if you're doing well or not. So I think it's also the type of the job yeah. that exposes you to that problem. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. Because you can work on something for half a year and then discover, ah, I was wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that is, it must be very frustrating. <laughs> but if you don't check, you don't know. But I, I do agree because I said before about the reviewers that are negative and that's obviously horrible. But yeah. also sometimes the people you work with can be really negative. And I think when you do something positive, it's not recognized. It's just expected. You should do well. Yeah. When you do something bad, then it's mentioned. Why, why yeah. did you waste lo your last six months? But if you have a great paper, it's like, okay, that's why you're working here to write a great paper. Now I'm doing something, um, maybe it's, um, even more rewarding uh, because uh, I see the kids going growing and I see how the progress they do. Uh, I see some of them that take the roots of science because I, I, I like to think that maybe because of us, uh, science team, who knows? And it, it's nice. I really like it. And if I have to be honest, I even think that working with a very small one is even more rewarding. Uh, because they are like sponge and really you think that you can maybe change their life. Uh, so, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's something maybe because I'm, I'm older now, I feel like I want something more relaxed. But I, I always say that since I joined working in a school, for me it's like vacation because it, it's all smooth. You know, there are no responsibility. Of course, there is the big responsibility of the education of the kids. And this is uh, uh, this is something, it's the priority, of course. But it's not some, I see the life. I see the kids, I see the education. Where I was working in a hospital. I see uh, illness, uh, disease and people being sick. So, you know, uh, <laughs> which it, it was interesting. It was really interesting and I do miss it. But uh, I, it's like now it's like being in vaca on vacation because I see all the nice things about <laughs> kids growing and, uh, you know, play, playing with them because it's like, I feel sometimes like I play. Of course, we, we do science, uh, we do experiments, we do practical. Sometimes it's hard because of the, the pressure of the exam uh, and things like that. But uh, doing science together and having fun together, for me, it's like being on vacation all the time. <laughs> so I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> I do feel that the work that you guys are doing is really important and changing people's lives, like the, the simple views you give on, on Instagram of science and like Emilia, the science experiments you show, um, uh, but like the insights on how a life as a scientist is going, I think that can really close the gap between science and other layers of the, of the general public. And like you said, a lot of children are interested in science because some, because of something they see, something they can relate to. And I think that's a great job that you guys are doing. Um, 
by the way, Emilia is Emilia.science on Instagram and Beth is Bethology. So uh, if you want to follow them, feel free to. I can only recommend it. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. So Beth, we talked about what you like and don't like in academia, but when you were a child, did you want to be a scientist or was it something completely different? I kind of went through every kind of thing a kid could possibly want to be, like most kids do. Um, I always liked science in school. It was always kind of my favorite subject because of like the experiments and like practical stuff. Um, and also my friends were quite interested in science. So we were both kind of, we were all just very engaged in it. Um, I also really loved history. So I was kind of at a crossroads when it came to studying my A-levels and figuring out what it is that I wanted to do. I was very kind of 50-50 and I went more towards science because I thought, what good is dwelling on the past? Why don't we work on the future? <laughs> and as I still love history though. And I love like the history of science and all, like all of these kind of things. And I kind of like that as a, a separate thing, but no, I, did, I don't think I always wanted to be a science, but I knew I was always interested in science and biology in particular. So it was really clear that it was going to be biology and not chemistry or physics or something. I was not good at physics at all. I liked all of the space stuff. I really liked it. Um, <laughs> a massive over oversimplification space stuff, but I really found that really cool. But I just, maths was never my strong point and you need to be pretty good at maths for physics. And that was kind of locked in my head a bit that, oh, I'm not good at maths, so I can't do physics. Yeah, I can see that a lot uh, among the students. Uh, yeah. Maths is hard. I mean, I was terrible at maths at school. And when I got to university, it kind of all clicked into place because I was using it in a subject that I enjoyed rather than its own separate subject. <laughs> I also want to point out in our sixth episode, we had uh, Jan Batens join, a professor in mathematics. And his anecdote was that he was horrible at math in high school. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it was like a lot of rote mathematics, actually. I just keeping doing the same thing and he was horrible at it. And when he went to university, he, then it was math that he liked and then he learned math. It's, it's very common to hear that. And also another thing, I mean, it's chemistry. Uh, lots of people say, oh, I wasn't good at chemistry in, uh, in, you know, in high school. And I think that is because of how it's taught. What we have study of chemistry in the high school, I think they should really, really revise everything because he, it, to be honest with you, it put down a lot the kids, and that's it's a real shame. It's a real shame. I I I I discovered chemistry, you know, in my late uh, career because when I was at school, I didn't like it much. To be honest, it's because of how it was taught. Then I went to university. I had to do some exam of chemistry, even though I took biology, and I uh, even there it was going better. But I have understood the beauty of chemistry when I started working in a school because I could do all the fun things and the, ex the really fun experiment, the demonstration, because I learned that from my job, you see. But that's a shame because we could do, I think we should do more of that with the kids when they are at school, less, a bit less of theory, which sometimes is too hard for that age. I am convinced about that. Sometimes I see the questions that they have to do for the GCSE and uh, they are too hard, honestly. How can we expect the kids to enjoy it if they are so stressed 
about this. So <laughs> a real good teacher is the one that can include everyone. So, and Emilia, actually, if yeah, you're also in science, but is there so is that also something you wanted to do when you were a child? Well, um, as Pat says, uh, <laughs> it's not that you decide to be a scientist since uh, you are small, but you are interested in it. And I was interested in science. When I, I, I have always been very interested in, uh, in the animals. Uh, I loved the dinosaurs when I was very small. Uh, I, I remember I used to play with my brother and he used to be uh, like uh, the doctor and was you know, like uh, fixing all my dolls that were sick with all the possible illness you can imagine. And I was the scientist that was doing, uh, uh, you know, the, like uh, the behind the curtain job, like the understanding. And this is actually what we end up doing that because my, my brother now is, is a doctor and uh, I, am a, my, I, I am a microbiologist, even though I, I don't work as a microbiologist anymore. But I, I, I like to say that I'm still is, and I, I still am, because I am still a microbiologist, even though I am in the school and I teach sometimes about that because the, the kids in year 10, they do also a bit of microbiology. So when they do, do, so I really enjoy doing that because I feel like I'm back in my own, in my own job. I just hope your dolls didn't have cardiovascular disease. <laughs> <laughs> but if you weren't a scientist right now, do you have any idea what you would be? I think I would love to be a museum curator. Really? <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's the first time I heard that answer. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's coming back to the history thing because I loved history. I love museums. Like, it doesn't, really, it doesn't matter what kind of museum it is. <laughs> I just find it cool. Um, and I find learning. I think it's just the learning about things I find very interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like that would have been like a really cool job. Like getting all of the 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 historical archives and things all of that i think that would have been really cool there's still time could still do that for a science museum <laughs> yeah. yeah but like learning i like the learning um like yeah i just like learning really emilia for you the same question what what would you be if you weren't working in science you know, I'm very, uh, it's very tricky for me to choose because there are so many things I like that I wouldn't know which one to pick. So I, I used to like art a lot. So maybe if I wasn't choosing um, science, maybe I would choose art. Or I, I was also a lot into ballet. So I used to, used to do ballet when I was a, a teenager. <laughs> I finished, actually, I got a diploma. I mean, I, I, did, I finished my studies. But then when I went to the university, I, I got to make a choice because I really could struggle. And sometimes, you know, I see on Instagram, some I follow really nice people that do both things. And I really think, oh, yeah, you see, you can do both things. <laughs> and that really, really makes me happy, to be honest, to see that some people have managed to do both things. So maybe, who knows, maybe I could have done. I really also, another thing I, I wanted to teach when I was very small, so maybe um, now I end up in the school, so that is interesting. Um, so ma many things, maybe I could have been a teacher, um, maybe a teacher by uh, the primary school, so not a, a subject teacher, let's say like a teacher for everything. Yeah. That's something you love as well, right, uh, Beth, uh, teaching? Yeah, 
it's something that I think I might potentially lean more towards like throughout my career hopefully I, I don't know what level but I do I do really like teaching I think kind of what Amelia said about just seeing people when you see someone kind of understand what yeah. you're saying or when when something clicks or someone get excited about something that's you there's no way that you can describe that feeling it's just so fulfilling really I guess and I think sometimes like you were saying about the disease and I'm looking on like cardiovascular disease and all like some of these like horrible things um that it would be really cool to be part of someone's journey into science I I see that hopefully one day in my future um I don't know when or where or what but I would love I would love to see that yeah maybe at the end of uh, like I did you know when you feel like you are quite for the further your career and you want to, uh, even though I have to say, I'm not a teacher, so uh, I want to clarify that. I'm not a teacher, I'm an lab technician, so I do just the practical part with the kids. So I do the, the laboratory, basically, which is great because I do the fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sometimes when I, when I think about teaching, it's uh, sometimes they ask me why you don't um, become a teacher, a qualified teacher, you can teach science. I would never do that, uh, not because of the job, which I, I would love, but for all the things um, related to that. But also all the pressure the teachers are, are under, that, that is incredibly hard. Uh, sometimes I see the teacher at school, they have to deal more with the bureaucracy rather than with the kids, and that is another shame. So you see, uh, <laughs> that's why I think my, my job is really like a vacation, because I avoid all that and I just do the, the fun part. It's interesting you say all of that because I've spoken to a few professors in my field and some of them have said that they miss the lab so much that they don't feel like they'll ever retire, that they want to be a science technician because that's where all the fun stuff is and they can be a kid again. Um, and I completely agree with that and I think it's yeah you get to like you've already said you have so much fun in what you do and the kids have fun so I think it is it's but it's really important though because I think kids when they're having fun they're engaged and they'll remember it and I think that's that's like some of the downsides of some of our, I guess some of the education system um but yeah I think what you do is like really awesome so <laughs> <laughs> I really have fun, so yeah, <laughs> I honestly, it looks great. <laughs> so, Beth, is there something that we should remember from this podcast, or something you like a take-home message for our listeners? I guess one thing I would say is, if you're interested in science, kind of whatever that may be, or whatever that looks like to you, I would just say follow the curiosity and see where it takes you, because you might end up doing some really awesome things. Yeah, just follow, follow your dreams. <laughs> yeah. yeah, always, always. <laughs> this was the 13th episode of Apple Finch Pudding. I want to thank Beth Webb for the information and Emilia Angelillo for the questions. Let's meet again for the next episode of Apple Finch Pudding.